I am going to go ahead and get started and not wait because there is so much to cover um, this week. And we have one straggler coming in. So good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, as we're continuing this uh, venture into a history of the New Testament Christian Church, I will just remind you uh, that last week we discussed the Old Testament Christian Church, and I made two propositions. The first one was that the uh, elect assembly in the Old Testament was indeed a church, and number two, that church was indeed a Christian church in the sense that it was looking toward the Christ, looking toward the Redeemer, toward the Anointed One that would deliver Israel, that would deliver the church from its slavery to the world. This week, I mentioned that we will be studying the intertestamental period, and it's my uh, position that the intertestamental period is the most understudied uh, period within the Bible. Notice I didn't say in the Bible but within the Bible. That period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, give uh, four or five hundred years, give or take, uh, has so much to do with the New Testament. I believe it's important that we spend a little bit of time there to make sure we understand what was going on prior to the advent of the Messiah. Um, but before we do that, uh, we have two uh, scripture readings that we'll go ahead and go through. And uh, one is from Zechariah, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Who would like to read that one? There we go. And Luke 1, 68 through 75. Anyone? There we go. All right. Go ahead and kick it off. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation to see, humble and mounted on a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the wolf horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, and today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up me, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield your warrior's sword. All right, very familiar passage, especially the first part, uh, with the reference to the Messiah riding on a on a donkey. Uh, and of course um, referenced in Handel's Messiah uh, several times. Uh, but Keep in mind that last part of this passage where Zechariah is saying, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. All right, now let's go to Luke 1, 68 through 75. Serve him without fear 
in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Okay, and we see here the, the word enemies mentioned a couple of times, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And of course, you see just by the uh, <clears throat> number in the, in the passage, Luke chapter 1, that this is very early uh, within the New Testament period. All right, so before we dig in, let's uh, oh, go ahead and open with prayer. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to come together and learn more about your people, more about your word, and more about your will. We pray that uh, you would uh, make this time together edifying and uh, profitable for, uh, for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Again, the intertestamental period, a uh, very uh, underlooked period within the Bible. The reason is because there's nothing about it in the Bible. All right, we go from Malachi to Matthew, and what's in between is kind of left up to uh, secular history. Now, there is uh, apocryphal uh, literature within that time period. Actually, some of it we will be taking a look at today to kind of fill in the gaps as to what happened and what were uh, the Jews thinking during this time period. Uh, I made two propositions last week. Similarly, I will begin with two propositions this week. The first is that the Greek and Roman culture had a drastic influence on the Jewish way of life their method of thought, and their motives. The second proposition is that this influence prepared the Jewish culture and, to a certain extent, the world for the advent of the Messiah. All right, This 300-year period in between Malachi and Matthew helped to prepare that Jewish mindset. Um, I meant to pass these out. Um, again, just for, there's no homework or anything, but to help you follow along with my train of thought. Uh, I have given you, uh, this time I've included key words at the top um, that can kind of help you, uh, maybe you'll, you'll recognize the name a little bit more when you see it at the top of the page, as well as some questions to think about uh, as we're going through this discussion. So when we talk about the first century Jews, uh, whether we're talking about first century BC or first century AD, Keep in mind that this was a very eclectic and somewhat cosmopolitan time. What I mean by that, it had a very uh, wide range of cultures, very diverse uh, in the influence and its method of thought and its uh, economic influence, its cultural influence. Um, the exile to Babylon had ended uh, more than 500 years before the advent of Jesus, but the Jewish state was not independent. They had returned. Uh, from Persia, but they were still not considered an independent and sovereign state. Alexander the Great had run, and some of y'all may have heard of him, he had run over Palestine uh, in the 4th century BC, and the Romans, uh, once they, their empire grew, had assumed propriety of that land upon their ascension to global supremacy, and we all are somewhat familiar, at least, with the uh, rise and decline of the Roman Empire, and they come into play uh, greatly when we were considering the first century Jews. Now, Jeremiah was absolutely correct when he had uh, prophesied that after 70 years, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. All right, his prophecy, however, by the Jews after their return from Babylon 
was misunderstood. They took it to mean that upon their return to Palestine, that was the catalyst, that was the instigator for the coming and the immediate uh, advent of the Messiah. Uh, however, uh, that, did, that did not happen. There were, there were still several, several hundred years uh, to go before there was even a messianic claim to be made by someone living in first century Palestine. All right, so Cyrus, after he had allowed the Jews to return, he did not allow them to resume their monarchy. He said, you can go back, but you still have to remain under my suzerainty. All right, it's a term you all may not be familiar with. It's a somewhat obscure and archaic term, but it's very appropriate. A suzerainty is, is sort of like a, uh, they, they maintain some sort of autonomy within that state, but there's always the understanding that they are subject and ultimately accountable to a higher authority. All right, so there's, a, there's an understanding between the, the Jewish state, as it were, and the Persian state, as it were, that yes, the Jews could return to Palestine, but that they were still ultimately accountable to the Persians. All right, it was uh, during this time, as the monarchy was no longer in effect for the Jews, that we see this priestly class, the high priests and the lower priests of, of, uh, of Israel, start to gain more and more independence. There was no civil authority, so to speak, that was uh, directly over the Jewish culture. So the priests kind of got to assume more and more responsibility, more and more power. This ended up being very uh, important for the development of the Jewish culture leading up to the New Testament. Uh, the Jewish uh, people during that time, they sort of welcomed uh, the, the growing power of the priests because not, not only because uh, it was uh, a reminder of their Jewish uh, heritage and, the, and the, the law and the prophets and their sacred writings, but it really became a source of constancy, of continuity for uh, the Jewish people who, had, uh, who were longing for that because of their exile into Babylon and this sort of foreign oppression. The, the, the priestly class of that time uh, was, it was a sort of a, a, a source of... Uh, uh, certainty for the Jewish people. They could know that there was uh, something Jewish about their culture that they could cling on to. And again, this became very important. But it was uh, from this priestly independence, all right, the relative independence compared to the monarchy and the, and the judges, uh, that we see sort of different denominations arising within the priests, within the Levites, all right, the first one that we're going to mention is the Sadducees. Everyone has heard the term, at least. You may not be familiar with the details of their sect or of their denomination. Um, but these are traditionally regarded as uh, sort of the more conservative priestly class. Uh, and I'll, I will use the terms throughout this uh, uh, course, the terms conservative and liberal. Uh, and we'll talk about the conservative uh, Sadducees and the liberal Pharisees. But what I don't mean is in the modern conservative and liberal sense uh, in that you know, the Sadducees were ardent proponents of the Second Amendment and the, uh, the, the Pharisees were you know, sort of <coughs> emphasizing equal distribution of wealth. That's not what I mean at all. all right? uh, in, the, in this sense, when, I, when I'm talking about conservative Sadducees or conservative any component, is that they're, they're more inclined to preserve or conserve the existing political structure 
Not necessarily the social structure, but the more of the political structure. All right, and when I say liberal, I'm uh, speaking to the effect that they are more inclined to liberate themselves from the existing political structure. Does that make sense? I don't want any confusion uh, about, my, about my usage of the terms conservative and liberal because they're loaded terms today, believe me. And uh, I, I don't mean to, uh, I, I will not mean to uh, imply any sort of uh, modern political agenda on any of our historical figures. All right, with the, uh, the second temple that was built, um, again, as the priestly class was sort of a unifying uh, a, a, a unifying office, the temple itself became a building that was sort of a, a unifying building. It was a, a physical structure that every Jewish person could look toward as saying, this is ours, and this is what it means to be Jewish, uh, represented by a, a physical, uh, physical edifice and a building um, that was nominally free from foreign influence. All right? But uh, what happened before the, the exile, or excuse me, the return from exile, it, while in Babylon, uh, the Jews were not allowed to worship at the temple, of course, because they happened to be a few hundred miles away. Um, more like 700 if you go around the Golden Crescent. So it was a, kind of a long trip to get back to the temple, and I don't think the Persian uh, emperors would have let them anyway. So they had to come up with uh, different solutions while they were in Babylon to continue their worship. And what we saw emerge during this time period very slowly was the concept of a synagogue. All right, And a synagogue is actually a Greek word. It's not a Jewish word. It's a Greek word uh, used to describe uh, an, an active, uh, worshipful assembly of Jews. So they started using it in the, in the Septuagint. And uh, just a brief history of that word so you can get a better idea of how it started and maybe what it meant back then. Uh, you see the word S-Y-N, uh, sin, which we have in many English words like synchronize, uh, synergy. You get a, get a concept of things coming together, right? All right, and the word... Uh, uh, Agaian, I think, is, is, is the Greek word, the, the suffix of the word. Uh, we actually see that very uh, uh, frequently throughout the English language as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a verb to describe agency, agaian, agency or action. Uh, the word agaian goes into Latin and becomes oct, octus, uh, so it has an action. So we have this assembly that is very active, and it's, it's along the lines of, the, while the word ecclesia, which we talked about last week, uh, is sort of a general concept, not a theory, but sort of a general concept of the church. This synagogue was used to imply an, an actual going, an actual doing, an actual performance, while the ecclesia was sort of just the, the, the general concept. If we associate it with modern terms, uh, we might think of Congress as a concept, while a congressional session is where things actually get done. Well, you can make a joke about that, but <laughs> <laughs> theoretically, it's where things get, a congressional session is where things get done, while Congress is uh, more of the concept of that assembly coming together. All right. Uh, the, the, there was the, the concept of the synagogue where people would go, and it was very public. It was an active forum where people debated. It was not simply, uh, there was not, a, 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 not simply a liturgy of worship but it was an actual debate, a reading of the scriptures. The uh, opposite of that was what's called the prosuka. 
All right, and this is probably a word that many people have not heard. I certainly didn't hear of it until I started studying this course. But what the prosuka was, it is referenced in the New Testament, although not called as such. But the prosuka was a private place of prayer. All right, it was maybe you had five or six people gathered there, 10 or 11. You know, it was a very small assembly, but there was no debating. There was no uh, grandstanding. There was no uh, offering of political opinions like there were in the synagogue or uh, calls to action like there were in the synagogue. What there was in the prosuka was simply a house of prayer, and it was usually a five-sided room. What I mean by five-sided is that there was a floor, there were four walls, and that's it. No ceiling. All right. The reason was you could pray directly to God, ostensibly. Right. And that was the symbol. That was the symbol of the prosuka was being able to pray directly to God without the confines of a ceiling. And this was very private. And, uh, you know, while today we consider our, our houses of worship, this church, you know, we have our, our house of prayer and our house of doctrinal instruction is kind of the same thing. Uh, back in the uh, early 1st uh, and 2nd century B.C. of, uh, of uh, Jewish life, they were very separate. All right. Uh, so what we see in Matthew 6, when Jesus is excoriating the hypocrites, Right? He's not just simply chastising them for giving a vainglorious prayer within, within the synagogue. Uh, he's also chastising them for engaging in a, what should be a per private and personal prayer in a very public place. Have fun with those peas. Right? So, we, when he, Matthew, in Matthew 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, so we see this concept of avoiding these uh, magniloquent and grandiose prayers in the synagogue and really taking your heart into the prosuka and speaking directly with God in that fashion. All right. So if we consider, as in Babylon, when they started these synagogues and prosuka, you might consider these satellite churches to the temple itself, uh, because, again, the temple was off-limits uh, during the exile. Uh, but that, that concept carried over when they came back to uh, Palestine, when they came back to the land of Israel. All right, the synagogue, the concept of the synagogues and the prosuka uh, stayed in place, and because of that, these synagogues kind of developed a sense of subordination to the temple. As they got closer, you had the temple and these subordinate synagogues. The more subordinate synagogues and persuke that you had, the more it elevated the status of the temple itself. Think about it this way. The more subordinates you have under your charge, the more powerful you feel. Correct? Or maybe overwhelmed. But <laughs> generally speaking... Uh, the, the, the more subordinates you have, theoretically, the more power you have. And so as the synagogue community grew, these satellite churches grew, the authoritative structure of the temple itself, per se, and think, keep that in mind, the temple per se, as in and of itself, grew along with it. I don't mean that uh, prior to the synagogues, the temple wasn't important from a worshipful standpoint, but I'm talking about the building and the office of the temple itself Became, had, became more authoritative over the Jewish way of life. Um, if you think about, uh, you know, obviously, for Roman Catholics, uh, the Vatican holds a, a certain 
place of significance. But it's not just that it's, a, it's the, the Basilica of St. Peter, you know, in that it's a church and it's a great place to worship God, but it's the main, it's, it's like the Mecca of the Catholic Church. And it's almost like it becomes this, the building in and of itself, the Vatican in and of itself becomes this uh, idea to, to strive toward. All right. We don't see that necessarily in the Presbyterian denomination uh, because of our, our political governance, but you see it in the, in the Mormon community, you see it in Islam, you see it uh, to a certain extent in the Episcopalian church with uh, Canterbury uh, in England. And that's what, that's what the temple was becoming, was this sort of uh, central point, not just because it was the house of God or the dwelling place of God, but because it was the, uh, the authority to which all of these satellite churches were subordinate. All right. Um, now, because the temple was built and completed under the suzerainty of a foreign power, there were some that questioned the legitimacy of the temple. This caused further intellectual divisions among the Jewish culture, and it also uh, perhaps caused that uh, Jewish way of life a little bit more open to foreign ways of, of thinking. And here comes Alexander the Great coming down the road with his army. All right. And before we get into what Alexander the Great, we're not going to really talk about Alexander too much. He's just a familiar name to, to let you know uh, where we're at in history. All right. But what we're going to talk about is the conflict between uh, Jewish culture and Greek culture. And the Victorian poet, uh, Matthew Arnold, uh, has called the conflict between Hebraism and Hellenism as cosmic rivals. All right? They are dividing, he says, they are dividing the empire of the world between them and alternately controlling the impulses of civilization. Um, Hellenism is uh, the Greekifying of, of anything. Back in the classical age of the third century onward, uh, Hellenization was the uh, inculcation of Greek culture into every way of life and every uh, people that they touched. Um, but according to Matthew Arnold, uh, Hebrew, and I think it's a, an appropriate analogy, it's sort of, he saw uh, the conflict between the Hebrews and the Greeks as sort of a, a microcosm uh, of the total conflict between human nature and human nature, and that there is a conservative impulse and that there is a liberal one. And keep in mind those terms that I talked about again, all right? I'm not talking about modern political connotations, all right? The nation of Israel was the conservative impulse and the Hellenization was sort of the liberating impulse. The nation of uh, Israel with its revered history and its traditions and its recognition of a supreme single authority was naturally conservative, all right? And uh, again, I'll, I'll reference Will Durant. I think he says it very well. <clears throat> the idea of a surveillant and upholding deity entered into every phase and moment of Jewish life. Morals and manners were ordained by the Council of Elders in strictness and detail. Entertainments and games were few and restrained. Jewish religion scorned the concessions of Greek ritual to popular imagination. It would have nothing to do, the Jewish culture would have nothing to do with images, oracles, or birds' entrails. It was less anthropomorphic and superstitious. It was less colorful and joyful than the religion of the Greeks. Face to face with the naive 
polytheism of Hellenic cults, the rabbis chanted the sonorous refrain still heard in every Jewish synagogue today, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eleinu Adonai Echod. Anyone know what that means? I know you do. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. All right. This is the, the what, what do they call the, the Shema? The Shema. Uh, it's still spoken by every uh, practicing Jew in, in every synagogue today. Contrast that with uh, Greek culture, and if you know anything about Greek culture, you know that it is full of gods and goddesses from the myths uh, up until uh, its conquest by the Roman Empire. So when, when Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, uh, the Ptolemies, P-T-O-L-E-M-I-E-S, uh, became the governors of Judea as a result. And they brought with them more than just a new form of governance and more than a new administration. They brought with them an entirely foreign culture from the West, uh, one that by comparison to the Jewish way of life was very loose with its morals uh, and with as many notions of right and as, uh, excuse me, with as many notions of right and wrong as there were people. All right, we tend to think that moral relativism is a modern invention. Um, it's not, <laughs> not by any means. Of course, we could, we could even argue that it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, which I, I, I think is appropriate. But while the Jews, the, the, the Jewish scripture and the Jewish way of thinking was uh, praying to God, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Not only is there truth, but it's eternal truth, and it's perpetual. It never ceases. All right? Contrast that with the Greek philosopher Democritus, who says, truly, we know nothing. Truth is buried deep. Objects of sense are supposed to be real, but in truth, they are not. Now, you can see the irony in the statement that Democritus is making general and universal truth claims about the lack of truth. All right? Think about that. But that's what, moral, that's what relativism does, is it makes at least one, at least one universal truth claim that there is no truth. And of course, you, it's easy to see that that argument falls by its, under its own weight. All right. But nonetheless, relativism persists, I guess because it's attractive. I think it's because it helps us get away with what we want to do, or at least rationalize it. <clears throat> and it helps us not to be accountable. Uh, to a higher authority, but uh, I digress. So <clears throat> Judea was besieged both physically and uh, culturally uh, by Hellenic cities, by these Greek conquests. Uh, among them were Samaria and Acre, uh, Damascus, Philadelphia, Hippo, and uh, Scythopolis. All of these cities had uh, temples to Greek gods and this sort of Epicurean atmosphere uh, where life before death what consisted of the ideal situation of life before death was to eat, drink, and be merry. Okay? So this, you, the, the, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by this influence, both literally and figuratively. And you can imagine how that affected the, the young Jewish youths that are growing up and seeing this outside. Now we're kind of in the, in the suburbs of New York City, right? I imagine there's a perpetual influence from the city 
to its outskirts and people look toward it as, oh, well maybe that's uh, something I can aspire toward. Think of this in the same way, the, the Jewish youths are growing up and they see, oh, this is something different and hey, they get away with a lot more and maybe, <laughs> maybe I can be a part of that. Um, and they started to see, remember we talked about the Sadducees, this sort of conservative class of, of, of priests. Uh, they saw them as, and I'm not kidding here, they saw them as greedy elitists. Okay? They saw them not as the voice of the people to God, um, but rather they were an, an elitist class that was uh, not part of them. They were others. Okay? The allure of the Greek culture extended to the Jewish public administration, and uh, Jews themselves sought to become part of the Greek administration. They began seeking offices within the Greek, uh, the Greek governorship of Judea during that time. Uh, these positions offered security and more wealth than the Jewish uh, way of life, uh, the Jewish occupations that were traditional in Palestine. <coughs> and they eventually, we see this in the uh, writing of the New Testament, of course, the Jews of that time eventually adopted the Greek uh, language. All right, the, the entire New Testament is written in uh, Greek, and it's for this reason, this Hellenization, uh, this inculcation of the, Jew, of the Greek culture into the Jewish culture. Here's where it gets bad. Uh, the Jews and the Greeks began to uh, conflate their deities. And what I mean by that is they started uh, accepting the other. The Greeks said, oh, pff, yeah, one more God, why not? We'll, we'll, take, we'll take that one. But then the Jews said, oh, you got all these other gods? Well, yeah, sure, we can deal with them. All right. the, the influence of the Greek culture began to infiltrate its way into the Jewish worship. Now, under the high priest Menelaus, and this is according to the Maccabees, uh, Jewish worship, the worship itself, not just the culture, but the worship, the religion, was Hellenized, and some Jews even offered sacrifices to Greek deities. All right, uh, Resistance from the conservative majority... The, the, the people who wanted to uh, preserve and conserve uh, the, the theocratic uh, idea of, of Judaism uh, was met with slaughter, okay? These conservative Jews were actually killed because they wanted to uh, preserve the traditional Jewish worship, all right? And there was a compulsory Hellenization among the Jewish people during that time, all right? The Greeks... And the Jews, the Hellenized Jews, said, you will become more Greek or else. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more next week about a, a guy named Antiochus. But just uh, as, a, as an introduction right now, uh, uh, the Greek governor Antiochus came and dedicated, the, <coughs> dedicated the Jewish temple as a shrine to Zeus. All right. He, Antiochus, forbade the keeping of the Sabbath. He force-fed pork to the Jews. If you refused, you were killed. And he burned the Torah wherever he could find it. Okay? It's pretty bad. This is all going on between Malachi and Matthew. All right? Keep in mind, it's a lot of stuff. Can you imagine how this would influence the people of Jesus' day? All right, so from the Hellenization of the liberals and the persecution of the conservatives who had not fled, there arose, uh, we're going to be familiar with this story a little bit, there arose a poorly trained band of rebels uh, led by a man named Judas Maccabee. 
Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. That's what Maccabee means, the hammer. Okay, uh, This little band of rebels being outnumbered and outskilled by the Greek uh, army uh, defeated Antiochus at Emmaus and Mizpah and marched into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple of paganism and purify it of all the defiled elements. I almost said elephants. (laughs) All of the defiled elements within the temple, they purified it, and they only were able to find or come up with a single vial of undefiled oil. And this was only enough to light uh, the menorah, for light, light the temple, keep the temple lit for one night. But miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders. <laughs> this oil lasted for eight days and nights, uh, enough time for them to consecrate and prepare new oil. We know this as Hanukkah today. All right, again, this all happened between uh, Malachi and Matthew. Now, there was sort of a major swing of the pendulum with the Maccabees, all right? The Maccabees came, and they drove out the Hellenized Jews. They said, now it's your turn to be persecuted, all right? And they fought for a complete independence from Greece, and they were supported by this little guy over a little bit farther west from Greece called Rome, all right? They were supported in their independence from Greece by Rome. Uh, Simon Maccabeus, uh, the successor to Judas, achieved sort of a nominal independence from Greece about, um, here's the one date I'm going to give out, in 142. Uh, Simon, as a result, was uh, appointed high priest by the popular decree of the Jewish people, and he actually made this high priestly office hereditary, and it became known as the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmonean dynasty, and there are some very important rulers under the Hasmonean dynasty following. Um, Jewish orthodoxy, while it was reborn, uh, the damage from the Hellenization from Greece was permanent, and these polarized sects of Jews, the conservative ones and the liberal ones, uh, polarized them into countless divisions, uh, some of them uh, longing for the return of pagan morals, um, others overcompensating by extending the moral and ceremonial law to every minute of Jewish life. Does this sound familiar? Here come the Pharisees marching down the road. All right, The Pharisaic class, born out of the synagogues and the Pursuka. Remember, this, is, this satellite church mentality sort of gave rise to a different type of priests, uh, different type of uh, religious leaders. And this Pharisaic class rose to power out of this crisis. They were called Pharisees because the, the, the word uh, perushim, I guess is, is how you say it, actually means separatists because they took great care uh, to separate themselves from any kind of perception of religious impurity. All right? They demanded the strictest adherence to the law in contrast to the Hellenizing force, uh, which sort of uh, compelled the Jews to abandon their law completely. All right? The Pharisees came in and said, no, we got to preserve, we got to have every minute of our life governed by uh, Jewish law as opposed to Greek law. All right? So not being satisfied with the law and the prophets, they began to add an oral law that supposedly was passed down orally from Moses on down, but uh, they could never prove it. Um, it became this sort of oral tradition, and it was the, the supplement, it was the commentary on the law and the prophets that they gave the force of law. 
Okay? <clears throat> and this was the only way uh, that they thought uh, to resist and repeal this foreign assimilation that was so prevalent uh, coming from the Greeks. Um, now, there was another uh, faction that came during this, uh, this time called the Essenes. Uh, they were sort of competed with the Sadducees and the Pharisees as well, but we're gonna, for right now, we're going to pass over them. There will be some more discussion on them later. Um, so, after the Hasmonean dynasty, after the Maccabees came in and they achieved this uh, Greek independence, uh, excuse me, they achieved independence nominally from Greece, um, their struggle was not over. Um, but it's, it's important to know during this time period that this, this constant threat of foreign assimilation uh, was a very real entity to the Jews. Some who wanted to uh, preserve Jewish tradition, others who wanted to adapt to that foreign threat. So as we say goodbye to the Greeks for the time being, we'll introduce the Romans. And under the uh, Hasmonean dynasty, or what's called the Second Jewish Commonwealth, Jews actually began to expand their own borders. Uh, they conquered their neighbors to the north and to the east. And uh, as a result of this sort of uh, bellicose stance, this warlike stance among the Jews, uh, religious zeal that uh, began with a fervor under the Maccabees sort of evolved into a political zeal. Uh, and the Pharisees protested a renewed threat of Hellenization. They saw this growth of, of uh, politics modeled after the Greeks and not modeled after foreign powers again as a threat. Uh, under the Hasmonean dynasty, a man by the name of Aristobulus uh, had begun the war against tradition. All right? uh, he was this political leader that begun the war of reli against religious tradition by declaring himself king. Now, Aristobulus was a descendant of Simon Maccabeus uh, and was a Levite. And if you are a Levite, what can't you be? Anyone? King. If you're a Levite, you can be a priest, but you can't be king. Okay? At least according to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, as the king of Judea, uh, the king of Judea traditionally had been a descendant of which tribe? Judah. David, right? And, and the, uh, at least for the Pharisees who accepted the prophets and the writings, contrast that with the Sadducees who only accepted the, the, uh, the Pentateuch. Okay? The Pharisees accepted that the Jewish king would be a descendant of David. We'll talk about more, that more next week, though. Um, so this infuriated the Pharisees when this Hasmonean, this Levite, declared himself to be king uh, and they began to uh, conspire to get rid of him. Uh, however, Aristobulus ended up dying before they could do anything to him. Uh, Aristobulus's brother, Alexander Janius, succeeded him, and they and the so again declaring himself king. And so this con continued the rift between the church and the state. All right, the Pharisees portrayed Alexander Janius as a tyrant and again began to conspire to overthrow the Hasmonean priesthood in toto. All right, get rid of it all. Get rid of the Hasmonean priesthood, get rid of the king, get rid of everything. Um, in retaliation, so this is a Jewish leader, mind you, this is a Levite, Alexander Janius was feasting, this is what Josephus tells us, 
Alexander Janius was feasting with his concubines in the sight of all the city. He ordered about 800 of them, the rebels, to be crucified. While they were living, he ordered the throats of their children and wives to be cut before their eyes. This is what the Jews got for trying to overthrow the Hasmonean dynasty. Okay? Again, all of this is happening between Malachi and Matthew. After Alexander Janius, uh, a, a woman by the name of Salome Alexandra, who happened to be both Aristobulus's wife and his brother's wife, okay, she succeeded Janius and propelled the Pharisees. She actually helped out the Pharisees. She, she propelled them into the ruling class. Uh, however, she didn't last long, but her sons, a man by the name of Hyrcanus and another man by the name of Aristobulus II, began this war of succession, all right? As Judea expanded, Rome was kind of doing the same thing. You know, we understand this time period a little bit. Rome is growing. Judea is growing. Eventually, they're going to meet. There's going to be something, something bad could happen, right? All right, so Rome is traveling southward into Palestine, and uh, Pompey, we know that name, right? Pompey, um, Maybe you don't know what he did, but he was uh, pretty influential. I'm not going to go over that right now. Uh, but uh, he had already reached Damascus. And uh, these two Jewish leaders who were fighting over the throne uh, were already sort of recognizing that Rome was going to be a greater authority and we better subject ourselves. What Hyrcanus and Aristobulus did is they went to Pompey and said, hey, you decide who gets to be king and we'll accept whatever you Whatever you say, O oh great Pompey. Uh, Pompey favored Hyrcanus, and guess who disagreed with that? Aristobulus II. All right. So he went to Jerusalem, and he fortified himself in Jerusalem with an army. Uh, basically, uh, pardon the expression, but uh, Aristobulus gave the middle finger to Pompey and said, I'm going to do it my way. All right. So you can imagine how Pompey felt about that. All right. Pompey, as a result, went into Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and ended the war of succession by saying, okay, neither of you get to be king. I'm going to appoint my own king, who happened to be a Gentile. This was Antipater, the Idumean, or Antipater, the Edomite. All right? And Edomite became the Jewish king. This began the Herodian dynasty. <coughs> um, but... On the plus side, the Pharisees got their wish that there was no longer a Levite who was also a king. So small victory for them, I guess. Uh, now, during this time period, uh, the Jews sort of intermittently revolted against the Gentile leadership. Um, but, you know, Rome, they had, you know, Antipater had the, had the power of Rome behind him. And uh, they eventually wiped out all of the Hasmoneans uh, in, uh, in Jewish Palestine. Uh, Antony... And Octavian, you remember those names? Octavian later was Caesar Augustus, uh, named Herod king after Antipater's death. And uh, Herod uh, led the slaughter of many Jews. And it was under Herod uh, that uh, Octavian became Caesar. So Herod, again, who was also a Gentile king, nominally converted to Judaism, but Herod saw the Greek civil civilization more uh, unifying for his realm than the Jewish civilization. He saw it as a method to unify the people. All right? Um, 
And he began, he began to reinstitute the Hellenization of Jews. We recognize this name Herod, right? We're getting closer and closer to the advent of the Messiah. And all this is going on, the re-Hellenization of the Jews after there was this turmoil between the Maccabees and going back to Antiochus and all these other people. We're going back to a re-Hellenization. All right. He reinstituted uh, to Jerusalem he, the Greek theater, the gymnasium, the, the baths and the sculptures and all of the lasciviousness that comes along with these baths and gymnasium where everyone is walking around naked. All right? And this, again, offended the traditional Jews probably for the right reason. Um, he also saw the temple that was in existence as lacking in its appropriate grandeur. All right? It wasn't temple enough to be Herod's temple. He needed it to be the wonder of the world. All right, and so he expanded uh, the temple during this time period, and he completed it in about eight years, but really they continued improving on it until it was destroyed uh, by Titus in 70 AD. All right, remember we talked about the temple being elevated as a sense of office, not just as a sense of worship, but as a sense of office. This adornment of the temple during this time period gave even more fodder for that temple to be seen as a worshipful thing in and of itself. Not because God was there, but because it was the temple. Okay? Sort of like the Mormon temple in Temple Square in Salt Lake City. It's revered because it's a temple. Not because they think that God lives there, but because it's a temple. All right? So just as under the Pharisees, the keeping of the law became not necessarily about glorifying God, but rather about governing every minute of daily life, the temple itself became more about the temple than it became about worship for God. This will be important. Uh, with overt oppression and influence from foreign cultures at every turn, uh, many Jews sought to distinguish themselves far beyond what God had mandated in the moral and ceremonial law. It became common to see themselves as distinctly set apart and favored by God based on their DNA, based on their biology, based on their heredity. All right. In the apocryphal Psalms of Solomon, uh, which was written in the first century, probably after the conquest of Pompey, uh, the writer there claims, Lord, your love is toward the seed of Abraham, the children of Israel. You rear us as a firstborn and only begotten son. Does that phraseology sound familiar? So we do see in the Old Testament that uh, God does refer to Israel as his firstborn son. We see it in Exodus, and we see it in Jeremiah. But uh, the word here, uh, only begotten, the word used by the writer of the Psalms of Solomon is the word monogenes. Some of you may have heard that. It's a Greek word, and it doesn't just mean mono, meaning one, genes, meaning uh, uh, generated, generation, genes, genre. All these words come from genes in the Greek. Uh, has to do with the propagation of a species. Uh, it, it didn't just have to do with that, only begotten. It also was a term of uh, elevation, to uh, elevate something as being absolutely unique, and there is no equal among it. This is what the term only begotten meant to the classical Greeks. These writers of the Septuagint used it when they were translating uh, passages of Psalms that referred to uh, the Messiah in this way. Uh, Plato and Herodotus used monogenes in this way, and the Psalms of the Solomon uh, used it this way as well. 
So it was not just a biological thing, but something to identify absolute uniqueness wherein there is no equal. Yes, sir. Yes, so, this is, so for those that uh, aren't familiar with Septuagint, this was a translation of the Jewish scripture by the Greeks during this time period, during the, the time period we're discussing. And it became very influential, not just uh, in Jewish daily life, but for uh, every single uh, writer of the New Testament as well. All right. Uh, and, and Psalms, David writes, deliver my soul. Or, well, let me go back a little bit. Psalm 22, I'll, I'll, just as a, as a side for this monogenes, this is the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. And he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All right. Psalmist goes on to write and later in that psalm, Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, or my precious in some translations, or my monogenes, soul, from the power of the dog. All right. This is the word in question. So, uh, I'm emphasizing this because um, Israel is seeing themselves as, based on their DNA, as a sort of unique, wherein there is no equal, favored by God because of their DNA. And this, of course, we know, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this became a point of criticism uh, by Jesus and by Paul especially. All right. Um, just as another aside, Abraham, uh, or excuse me, Isaac is referred to as monogenes by the uh, Septuagint writers, not because Isaac was Abraham's only son, uh, but because Isaac was unique from Ishmael in that the promise of God was through his only begotten son. Okay? Now, let's move on very quickly. Um, as time went on, the Pharisees became a little bit more open to a Greek way of life, Greek culture. They surely didn't approve of the temporal influences, but what this Greek and Roman culture allowed them to do was uh, to practice their own laws and their own spirituality without uh, relative uh, influence and, and persecution. Um, it was also during this era, era that the uh, Jews themselves grew restless uh, they saw all this conflict, all this conflict we've been discussing from Antiochus up to Pompey. Uh, who's, who's suffering the brunt end of the stick here? It's the Jewish people. All right? And so they're longing to see this true Jew on the throne again, not some pretender Levite and not some Gentile king from the Herodian dynasty, but a true Jew uh, on the throne. And they saw this gradual growth of Roman influence upon their culture as being detrimental to their way of life. Roman morals were more like Greece, and uh, I'm trying to move quickly here because I've got to get done with this. Um, now, the Jewish priesthood remained, but the Jewish monarchy, again, was a thing of nostalgia and of hope. And it was the hope of every good Jew that the tribe of Judah would once more sit on the throne of David and rule the house of Israel. All right, Messianic literature became very popular during this time period. Uh, we see in the apocryphal Psalms of Solomon, and this is going to end it here. I'll end it with this. Um, the Apocryphal Psalms of Solomon was written during the height of the battle between the Greek and Roman and Jewish cultures. Again, probably written after Pompey's conquest. And we see a song of victory over pagan morality. And we see a song of the Messiah coming. See if you can find passages that are familiar in this Psalms of Solomon. I think it does a very good job of showing what the Jewish way of thought was after all of this conflict that we've seen. So bear with me. This is from the Psalms of Solomon, number 17, if you're curious. 
O Lord, thou art our king forever and ever, for in thee, O God, doth our soul glory. How long are the days of man's life upon this earth, as are his days, so is the hope set upon him. But we hope in God, our deliverer, for the might of our God is forever with mercy, and the kingdom of our God is forever over the nations in judgment. You, O Lord, did choose David to be king over Israel and swore him to touching his seed that never should his kingdom fail from you. But for our sins, sinners rose up against us. They assailed us and thrust us out. We're talking about the Greeks here. What you had not promised to them, they took away from us with violence. They in no way glorified your honorable name. They set a worldly monarchy in place of that which was set for your excellency. They laid waste to the throne of David in tumultuous arrogance. But you, God, did cast them down and remove their seed from the earth. In that, there rose up against them a man that was alien to our race. This is Pompey. According to their sins, you uh, did recompense them. I'm trying to translate the King James English here uh, as I'm reading, so bear with me. Um, O God, so that it befell them according to their deeds. God, you showed them no pity. This man sought out their seed and let not one of them go free. Faithful is the Lord in all his judgments, which he does upon the earth. This lawless one laid waste to our land so that no one inhabited it. They destroyed young and old and their children together. In the heat of his anger, he sent them away even unto the west, and he exposed the rulers of the land unsparingly to derision. But being an alien, the enemy acted proudly, and his heart was alien from our God. Again, this is Pompey. And all the things whatsoever he did in Jerusalem, as also the nations and the cities of their gods. Now the children of the covenant in the midst of these mingled peoples surpassed them in evil. There was not among them one that wrought in the midst of Jerusalem mercy and truth. They that loved the synagogues of the pious fled from them as sparrows that fly from their nest. They wandered in deserts that their lives might be saved from harm. Talking about the remnant of Jews here. And precious in the eyes of them that lived abroad was any that escaped alive from them. Over the whole earth they were scattered by lawless men, for the heavens withheld the rain from the dropping of the earth. I'm going to go through here. Um, the king, this pretender king, was a transgressor, and the judge, disobedient, and the people, the Jewish people, sinful. Now, here's where the uh, prayer for a Messiah comes in. Behold, O Lord, and raise up to them their king, the son of David, at the time in which you see, O God, that he may reign over Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength, that he may shatter unrighteous rulers, and that he may purge Jerusalem from nations that trample her down to destruction. Wisely, righteously, this king shall thrust out sinners from the inheritance, and he shall destroy the pride of the sinner as a potter's vessel. I'm going to stop there. There's much more. I encourage you to read it. It's a very interesting Psalm of Solomon, uh, very messianic in its nature. But what we see here is that we're not just looking for a political ruler that will gain dominance over the world. We're really looking among this Jewish people for a political ruler and a cultural ruler that will wipe out the foreign influences from the Greek and Roman culture. This is the drama. This is the setting for the New Testament. We'll look a little bit closer at it next week um, before we get to the actual birth of Christ. Because there's some things that we need to look at before we can really understand why it was so important when they said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? Any questions?
I'm sorry I didn't really interact very much this time, but I had a lot to get through, as you can tell. Uh, Pastor, would you mind closing us in, in prayer? Gracious God, in Jesus' name, we praise you this morning. We thank you for giving us Christ, um, prophet, priest, and king, that he, uh, as our prophet, spoke the truth convicting uh, all parties, all sides. Lord, we thank you that as our priest, he gave himself in our place. Lord, we thank you that as our king, he continues to rule and reign, not just over the surface of our life, but over our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to follow and worship you. And God, we pray your blessing on uh, this class, on Andy as he <coughs> teaches. And Lord, we pray that you would... Um, Send each of us uh, deeper into your word um, as we uh, think through all these things. God, you are glorious. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.